Mark chapter 6, Matthew chapter 14. Two spots this morning. Both passages that deal with the same topic. Let's pray and we'll get into the Word of God together. Lord, uh, we come here, you've drawn us to yourself seeking something. Something, Lord. Each of us different, each of us in a different place in life, a different place spiritually, Uh, maybe some here with walls up, big thick walls. Uh, We pray that you'd be the, the God who tears down walls, anything separating people from you. That you would begin to brick by brick dismantle the callous hearts. And Lord, maybe others here uh, just in crisis or, or with, um, in the midst of a drama. Lord, I pray that you'd use your word to minister today. Lord, we're thankful that your word is both living and powerful. If it weren't, we wouldn't be here. We would not come out week after week for a dead and cold word that we certainly couldn't attribute to a living and loving God. So, Lord, we come today not to hear from this preacher, this pastor. Pray you'd help people to look past me to you, that they would hear my words, and I pray they would be accurate. I pray they would be filled with passion and faith, Lord, as I present them. Uh, I pray people would look past me to you, Lord, that these are the very words of God. And it's, uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So we're, we had sort of a, uh, an out of the ordinary week last week. We had communion. We stepped out of the Gospel of Mark. Now we'll pick back up in the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter. Uh, we'll start in the 45th verse. We, maybe you remember, I'll refresh your memories. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story in all four Gospels of the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples had come back from their short-term mission trip. Mark continuing to highlight the busyness of the ministry, uh, the, the, just the sheer multitudes of people coming to Jesus for need uh, and for healing and for uh, teaching. And, and they were ready to go and have a rest. Jesus had said, come aside, let's, let's go rest. And, and rest is an important thing. But then the people showed up and the needs were still there. And so instead of resting... Jesus put them into commission again. Okay, guys, you're on. Time to feed them. And they were learning to be shepherds. They'd been fishermen. And they'd been tax collectors. And now Jesus is using these circumstances to teach them that part of their role as disciples of His is going to be to feed people. Of course, in the natural, they'll learn it, how to feed people like sheep. But certainly we go to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, and we see how there's the the preaching, the spiritual feeding that is so necessary. The Word of God is like life to us. It's our food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so they they get through that. Evening is approaching. The disciples had said, hey, Lord, send them away. And Jesus said, I got a better idea. You feed them. And so they went through all this. No idea how long it took. But now certainly the sun is setting. The day is late. They're all full. They all ate more than they should have. We know that feeling. They were glutted, as the the Greek word would indicate. And so now certainly it's time to pick up where they left off. Now it's time to rest. But verse 45 says to us, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. 
I would think that they would say immediately, he said to the disciples, let's go and let's have that quiet time we've been looking forward to. And certainly ministry and life is like that, isn't it? I mean, life is like the minute you're finally like, okay, next week my schedule will be better. Next week things will finally calm down. And, and, it, and then you, next week comes and you go, next week things will finally calm down. And especially, you know, life itself is challenging enough. But then if you attempt to be involved in ministry, you realize that the number of broken and hurting people far outstretches the number of people able to give aid. It's like a hospital after a, a tragedy. You know, like we just had, we just remembered 9-11. And if you think back to that incident where hospitals or any other crisis, a, a school shooting, anything like that, the hospitals just get inundated with people that are, that have been shot or wounded or hurt. And, and there's so many people and so few doctors and nurses to actually give the care. And sometimes churches like that. And which is, which is good. I mean, which is bad and good. I mean, it's bad because we want to see the sick people get healed and then get back in and help those, the next group that are coming in. That's how it's supposed to work. But even Jesus said himself that the harvest is great. But what's the problem? The laborers are few. And so what you don't hear from Mark, you do hear from John. John tells us that one of the reasons he sent his disciples away, he, he packed them in the boat and said, all right, guys, get out of here was because the people were so uh, moved uh, by Jesus feeding them that they were going to take him by force, as if you could. They were going to take Jesus by force and compel him to be their earthly king. And, and so this is, a, this is a problem. And of course, this is not what Jesus was for. I and mean, this is not what he came for. He is a king, you know that. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come to, to, to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. And his kingdom is not, not of this world. And so they wanted to make him an earthly king, a worldly king. Why? Because he fed him. He cared for their needs. I mean, who, who can blame him? So this is very damaging because for the disciples, I mean, hey, guys, we're pretty popular. I mean, they want us to be the king. Oh, no, I just couldn't. But where do I sit? Where do I sign? I mean, there is a certain draw to the appeal of the crowd, isn't there? And Jesus knows that. So he sends them out in the boat. It's dark. It's getting dark if it's not dark already. Instead of going uh, alone with him, because the next verse says, he sends them away, and verse 46 says, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, why didn't Jesus say, hey, let's all go to the mountain and pray? I think part of the reason is because school is still in session for them. Remember, they are in the Jesus school of discipleship. There's no better school of discipleship on the face of the earth than the Jesus school of discipleship. And they're learning. There were lessons they were supposed to learn when Jesus fed the 5,000. But Mark tells us at the end of the story that they didn't get the lesson. And so Jesus is going to repeat it. And, and he's going to allow them to go and actually direct them. And they're going to be in this storm that they're about to enter into, not because... They disobeyed Jesus, but because they obeyed him. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes it's, it's the very obedience to God that brings trouble and opposition and difficulty into our lives. And so we go, what? Well, you know what? It'd be easier not to follow Jesus. And on one level, you're right. 
But on another level, you, you miss it completely. And so they get in the boat. They go, Jesus goes to pray. Verse 47 says, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then, they, then he saw them straining at rowing. He saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. So I was on a rowing team in college, and, and so I, you know, not a rowboat, but a crew, a long, skinny boat. And anything you do into the wind is very frustrating. Whether you're a runner or a cyclist or any type of, even going for a walk against the wind. Maybe you've been in a place where the wind is just whipping and you've kind of got to lean into it a little bit to make any progress. And that's really frustrating. And so here these guys are, and interesting, the word straining means to torture or to afflict. By the time Jesus actually comes to them, they will have potentially been rowing for about 8 to 10 hours. They've spent all night tugging at those oars. Now remember, they've just been involved in ministry from from early in the day till later at the, in the, now all evening, and there's now 8 to 10 hours rowing. When's the last time you did anything strenuous for 8 to 10 hours? And your hands are hurting, and your back, I mean, you just imagine rowing and how your back is feeling. These guys are whooped. And they don't know Jesus is watching. But he is. He's got his eye on them the whole time. And there's times in your life where you think, you know, I'm straining. This is hard. This is difficult. Everything is against me. And I'm pulling and pulling. And sometimes our answer is just pull harder. And I feel like I'm getting nowhere. And so I pull harder and I still get nowhere. You ever felt that way? Man, my answer is just, well, it's hard, but I'll just pull harder. And that'll do it. I'll pull harder against my addiction, and then I'll solve it. Or I'll pull harder against this situation, and I'll solve it. And, and you find out, you know what, it just gets harder, it just gets worse. And so they're straining, and, and there's times when you thought, you know, where is Jesus? Where is he when we really need him? And Because he's, he's not here. He's watching. He'll be there. He's watching. So he sees them. That's the key. He saw them. And he's there, and remember, the Sea of Galilee is not huge. It's not real big. It's about 14 miles long up in the northern section of the Sea of Galilee. It's about seven miles wide at its widest part. So they've been spending eight to ten hours rowing. They've got about three and a half miles, which is not. So they take three strokes forward, and the wind blows them back two strokes. And so they're just not getting anywhere. And Jesus is watching this happen. Now, again, they're there not because of disobedience, they're there because Jesus sent them in the boat and said, go out. Now, this is the same God that calms the storms, you know. So this is, this is another setup. Remember, there's a, the school is still in session, just like it is for you. Because that you think this trial, our, our request to God is, God, get me out of this. And God says, wait a second, I put you in it. I want you there. You're right where I want you. Let's see why. Now, about the fourth watch, now, in Roman terms, that would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been tugging at this. I can't even drive all night without falling asleep. You know, I get tired about midnight. I'm falling. These guys are trying to pull on these oars all night long. And it's between 3 and 6 in the morning. And that's when Jesus comes to them. He let them strain it out for a while. He let them struggle a little while. Are you disappointed when God lets you do that? You ever, you ever, maybe you have, the worst thing you can do for your kids. I read this quote somewhere, or maybe I made it up, I don't know. 
It's a good one. So if I made it up, I want credit. The worst thing you can do for your kids is make their life too easy. And I tell this cute little story to illustrate it uh, of Jacob when he was young building with Legos. You remember Legos? Legos are awesome. And he was trying to put this thing together. And I'm a Lego master, man. I grew up on Legos. And like, I know it'd be easy for me to step in. As, move aside, son. Let me show you how to build that thing, right? Like I'm some Lego engineer. I could have done it for him. But I remember the Lord sort of, and it really, I would say the Lord stopped me at the doorway because he was getting frustrated. And the Lord's like, no, Steve, let him work it out. And I stood back and I just watched while he was working it out, working, he was straining at it. He was struggling with it. And it wasn't time to, I went in eventually and sat down next to him. But at the time, it was good for him to struggle through it. And sometimes it's good to struggle. You know, we just want God to come into our lives and, and calm the storm all the time. God, you, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he is the God who, who calms the storm. But sometimes he's the God of Deuteronomy chapter 8 who lets his people hunger. Lets his people hunger? Yeah, he lets his people hunger. Why? So he can show them that they can't produce food, but he can. And God shows you his resources that you don't know anything about. And if I could sit with people and beg people, people that don't know God, don't know what it's like to have a heavenly father who cares for them, just to say, look, God has got resources because you think if you can't figure it out on a human level, if you can't produce it yourself, it must not exist or it must not be possible. And, and so I just beg you got to understand God has he's letting you struggle now to show you your weakness. Because it's only sometimes in your weakness that you'll actually turn to him for strength. And so isn't that worth it? I mean, isn't it worth it to go through what you're going through? Because he is going to reveal another part of himself that he didn't reveal when he was feeding the 5,000. They learned a little something about him in the feeding of the 5,000, but not enough. They didn't get the lesson. So he's going to say, okay, guys, I'm going to come to you a different way now. Because they're thick-headed just like us. So they're straining. They're being tortured, afflicted with pain at the rowing. And Jesus comes to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Now, this is a fantastic sentence. I mean, there's so much. It's easy. We've heard the story before so many times. It's easy for us to just sort of read it over and not pay attention to it. Oh, yeah, Jesus come walking on the water. Yeah, we're reading the story today of Jesus walking on the water. Like, that's no big deal. But what I like is it, it says he came to them walking on the water. It didn't say he hopped into a boat himself and rowed his way out to them. But he comes walking on the water. Now, that, would you agree with me, is a miracle. That's, is, it, is it gravity? Is it surface tension? I mean, I was a biology major in college, and there's very little I remember about that. But one thing I remember is in chemistry class, learning that the molecular structure of water, if it was different, the world wouldn't exist as, as, as we know it. Because of the way, because water's essential to life, and because it's got this little kink in it, the molecule does, it's got all these properties that make life on earth possible. And one of the things it is, is surface tension. And so, we've all tried it, and don't pretend like you didn't. The first service, they tried to pretend like they didn't grow up with a neighbor that had an in-ground pool, and you take a running start and try to walk on the water yourself. You've tried it, we tried it, alright, maybe I'm the only one. Someone's shaking there, thank you. Kathy knows, she's tried it too. 
Uh, and you end up on the body. Okay, I'm going to walk on water and try to run across the water. Or maybe you've tried the Nestee Plunge. Anybody remember that? No? Somebody remembers the Nest Tea Plunge. It was the, the commercial for Nest Tea was an iced tea that was so refreshing that you'd stand on the edge of the water and you just, ah, you just put your arms out and you fall backwards into this cool, refreshing body of water. And that was called the Nest Tea Plunge. So we try to do that on the edge of the pool. The problem is in the commercial, they ris- misrepresent surface tension. And so you slam onto your back and you go, ow, <laughs> and your back is red because water has surface tension. But Jesus is walking on the water, not because the surface tension is increasing, because there are those little bugs, those little water striders that are so cool. They walk on water because they're light enough that they don't break the, the molecular adhesion in the, in, the, in the water molecules. But, see, we could do the nesty plunge when it was raining because the rain, see, we'd wait. It would rain, then we'd go out, okay, time for the nesty plunge because the rain would break up the surface tension. And then you could do it and not get hurt. But the storm is breaking up the surface tension of the water. The waves are up and down and up and down. And so it's not, the miracle's not in the, God increasing the surface tension of the water, although we could. But somehow this is like a gravitational miracle. Now, you go, well, I don't understand how that can happen. So I don't believe it. Well, I am really glad that God is not limited by your and my pitifully limited understanding. And I say that with all the love of Christ I can muster up. Aren't we glad that God's abilities are not limited by what we can just measure scientifically or by what we can just understand intellectually? We were on a walk the other day, Helga and I, we we have this woodsy walk we do, and we came across a spider web stretched across. And for some, we come across a lot of spider webs. Usually they end up wrapped around our head on a, on a walk and you're trying to peel the web off. But this time it stopped us in our tracks and we just looked at it. And we began to marvel at how a spider can spin that thread out of its abdomen somewhere and know how to engineer this beautiful web. It's, it's absolutely miraculous. Absolutely miraculous. And we just began to marvel. And there are things, when you stop and you begin to marvel at the things, it, who holds gravity together anyway? It, the Bible says that in, in Christ all things consist. Everything is held together. If it wasn't, everything would fly apart. And so for me, do I, can I intellectually explain to you how Jesus walked on water? Uh-uh. But I don't need to. I take it that it's true. That it happened. So he comes to them walking on water. And the, another interesting thing is that it says he would have passed them by. I mean, picture that. Like they're all, you know, oh, oh, pull, Peter, pull, you know, they're, they're harder. And here comes Jesus just walking in the water like, hey, guys, what's up? And just walking right by him. That's what it sounds like, right? Like, ah, you don't invite me to, in the boat. I ain't coming in. Which, is, which preaches well, but I'm not sure that's the idea. I think the idea is not that he was, because he saw them and he's coming to them. The idea isn't to play a trick on them. He sees their struggle and he wants to come to their side. He wants to come alongside of them. So it doesn't say, it's not necessarily that he's passing by them, but passing uh, to the side of them or, or pa- coming alongside of them is the idea. I think that fits better. 
And, and, and to me, the interesting thing is they've been struggling like crazy, and how long did it take him to walk there? I mean, he just walks right out there. So whatever it is that causes them or you or me to struggle and to strain, it's no problem for Jesus. He just walks right there, right through the wind, right through the waves, and he's by their side. God is not human. He's not limited by your... Jesus, fully human, fully God. But we try to... We somehow have this human concept of what God is like. He's like us. People say, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and then man returned the favor. We create God in our image. But God is holy. He's unique. He's perfect. He's just. He's merciful. He's powerful. He's sovereign. All of those things. And He is who He is. And you take Him or you leave Him. And I choose to take Him. And He comes alongside, walking through the water, faster, making better progress than they were making. And when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, literally a phantom. Because they're, they're not comprehending, oh yeah, it's just Jesus. He does this all the time. But they could, they could have said, well man, we've seen him feed the 5,000, we've seen him raise the dead, and now we see this figure walking on the water. I bet it's Jesus. He kind of does those type of things, doesn't he? I bet he's God. They're still struggling with this. So they see Jesus, they go, ah, it's a ghost. So they don't cry out to him, Jesus, get in the boat quick. They cry out for fear. They're scared out of their minds about a ghost. I mean, you ever felt like you saw a ghost? Like, or you just something scared you like that? They are out of their minds scared. This is not the reaction that, that, that should be. So they see him, they, and they, so they cry out for fear. Verse 50 says, for they all saw him and were troubled. So this wasn't just one guy seeing a vision or having a dream or he's asleep in the boat. This is all of them seeing the same thing. But immediately, listen, immediately he talked with them and said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now this is the same Jesus who, when he was asleep in the boat, the disciple says, ah, we're going under, we're going under. And Jesus rebuked the storm. He muzzled the storm and he calmed it. Now this certainly could say, if he was going to do it the same way every time, it could say, and when they cried out to him, Jesus immediately calmed the storm. But it doesn't say that. Because sometimes you feel like, well, this is what he did last time in my life. This is the way he worked it out last time. He did a miracle. Or he changed the circumstance. Or he stepped in in in, in a marvelous way. But this time, he talks to them first, right? And sometimes that's what, you know, you're looking for this, you're, you're like Elijah, you know, that God's going to show up in the earthquake or the fire or the storm or the wind, you know, this great miraculous, you know, earth-shaking situation. God's going to step in. And how did Elijah finally recognize God? In the still, small voice. That's where God was. And so here, midst the storm, Jesus, he talked with them. And sometimes that's what he does with you. The situation that you're in, you're straining so hard, you're working so hard, you, you don't recognize Jesus when he's there because he just wants to talk to you. He wants to tell you, be of good cheer. Now that's an interesting saying in and of itself because to me it sounds like he's like some British aristocrat, you know, at, at, at tea time and crimpets, you know. Oh, guys, be of good cheer. Because we don't talk like that. But literally it means 
be a, have courage. Take courage. Don't be afraid. And it, and it is I is, is literally the Greek ego I me, which means I am. He doesn't say be of good cheer or be courageous because you are. There's a lot of pastors that want to preach that. You are. You, and there's a lot of things you are. Don't get me wrong. One of the things I'm not is courageous because of who I am. Because I know my weaknesses. I know my struggles. I, I know the things you guys don't get to see. You ask my wife, she'll tell you, Pastor Steve and his weakness, she'd be glad to let you know that I don't walk on water. <laughs> but he says, be of good cheer because I am. It's the same Greek word that you Jesus or Greek word that Jesus used when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am. It's the same as the name of God. I am. Be of good cheer because I am. Do not be afraid. Now, we have to stop there for just a minute and go to Matthew because Peter, uh, excuse me, Mark leaves this little section out. So if you've marked Matthew chapter 14, I did ask you to mark that, didn't I? Yes, somebody say yes. I hear pages turning. Uh, Matthew 14. Now, interestingly, if you've been around for the previous week's study when we started in chapter 1, the introduction of the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember that Mark was not one of the direct followers of Jesus. So how does he know all this stuff? Mark wrote, historically speaking, from the perspective of Peter. It was Peter who shared his stories with Mark, and then Mark acted as the recorder of those. So he's sharing all, all of what Peter's experiences were, which makes it interesting that it's not Mark, but Matthew that shares the story of Peter walking on the water and then sinking and then crying out to Jesus. You would think Mark would share that. Peter would say, Mark, now make sure you include that part about me walking on the water. Let's not leave that out. Or maybe he said, Mark, um, don't include that part about me doubting and sinking. Let's not include that. So is it humility? Uh, it, you know, is it why isn't it? I don't know. It's only speculation. We can't know for sure. But we do know he didn't include it. But Matthew does, and it bears talking about. So in Matthew chapter 14, look at verse 27. We'll, we'll pick up. There's a little um, overlap with what Mark shared. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. So that's what we just read in Mark, right? These are overlapping stories. Matthew gives us extra information. And that extra information is really important. So Peter answered him, verse 28 says, and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. There's a bold statement, right? I mean, Lord, if it's you, I mean, he could have said, if it's you, calm the storm. Lord, if it's really you. And there's sometimes where we're looking for some type of validation, like we get this inkling, Lord, if it's really you, I got a burden, you know, and I, I got this feeling, I got this, this, this thought, Lord, if it's you, if it's you. And, and we look for that validation. We look for that understanding. And I like this because Peter could have said anything. But he gives Jesus this, this request that has to do with him entering in to a potentially dangerous and life-threatening situation. I mean, I'm no swimmer. If I'm getting out of the boat into the storm i got to be fully girded with my rubber ducky and my arm floaties and everything because I don't swim so great. So this is a pretty bold thing. And to, you know, hey, Lord, if it's you, 
command me to come to you on the water. We love Peter because of his impulsiveness. I mean, anything could have worked. If it's you, Lord, get in the boat with us. So he said, come. He didn't say, Peter, walking on the water is my deal. That's what I do. You stay in the boat. I'll be out of the boat. Everybody will be okay. We won't need a rescue squad. We'll all be fine. But he says to Peter, come. It's, it's in Peter's heart to get out and go meet him there. In the middle of the storm. And I love that. I love this story. And even though it's been shared thousands of times over in churches all over the world and all over the country, and it's easy to get to, to let the story get familiar, too familiar to us, that it no longer speaks to us. And I pray that this morning, this story speaks fresh to you for a number of reasons. Number one, because what I like about Peter is his request involves him doing something that he could never do in his own power. You know, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when's the last time you did something in your life that actually took faith? Where you didn't have it all played out, you didn't have it all planned out, you didn't know what the end was going to be, you didn't know how it was going to turn out, you weren't in control. But you knew the Lord gave you burden. I shared my story last week. My story is my story. You've got to get your own story. Steve, if you love me, feed my sheep. When I saw people that they were like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus said, Steve, have compassion on them. Sit down and teach them. And, and it, God gave me a burden to teach people His Word. And so I said, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. I mean, I can't do it by myself. I can't. I don't have the power to do it. And that took faith. And, and I pray that that's, I pray that I'm not always telling the story about how I did something five, ten years ago that took faith. I hope there's new things all the time in my life. Constantly trusting Jesus for more and more. And so maybe the Lord gives you a burden. And, and, and you say, well, I, I want to do something. You know, Hudson Taylor said, attempt great things for the Lord and expect great things from the Lord. And so all the other disciples, you know, they're still safely in the boat. And it's Peter the one, the one is the one who's daring to trust the Lord in a way that he couldn't be in control. He couldn't, the power is not in him to keep himself afloat. So he says, come. And Peter had come down out of the boat. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. He did it. He walked on the water. He's the only disciple that can say that. All the other guys were safe and sound and secure in what we would call their comfort zone. And in these days we live in, look, people are waiting for us to be what we say we are. You know that? People are tired of hearing what we say and not seeing how we live. They see a discrepancy. They see a contradiction in our lives because we talk about these things. We talk about love and we talk about faith. But then their experience with us is, is quite different. And so my question is, what is it? And I can't answer it. It could be very, you know, it could be very different. There could be someone here who struggles with panic attacks. And just coming here and being in a room with people. I mean, you guys are scary. Do you know that? You're scared. People that come here for the first time, you guys scare them. It's true. I meet people so many people, it's, it's, cause I'm an extrovert, so I'm like clueless about this. Like, I love people. People are energizing to me. 
most of the time. But there are some that would rather get like cavities filled than to be here in church because there's people. And that takes to just come the first time might be an act of faith. But for some of you, you've been doing it all your life. It's easy now to do that. It's easy to come to church. You don't get credit for that anymore. What's next? What's the next thing God is going to leave? And you say, God, that burden I have for orphans, that burden I have for sex trafficking, that burden I have for children, that burden I have for, is that, if that's you, Lord, command me to come to you. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I can't explain. Peter didn't say, well, Jesus, I'll come to you, but first, you got to grow me, give me the diagram. Show me how this actually happens. What is the surface tension here? Do I, do I do a back dive in or do I jump in feet first or how do I do this? He just gets out and goes. Now, don't do that unless you know it's a burden from the Lord. Don't step out in your own power. So he sees the, he, he, call, he comes to, to Jesus. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Verse 30 says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. So again, uh, we all know the story. He took his eyes off the Lord. He got his eyes on his circumstances and then he began to sink. And there is great, as many times it's been preached, I still think there's great truth in that. There still is this temptation. There can be a thousand things going well and Jesus is, is right there. His word is right there for you, but you begin to look at all the things that are going wrong and all the problems and all the trouble. And it's so easy in the midst of life to get your eyes off of the Lord. And and the Bible continually tells us, fixing your eyes on things above and not on things of the earth. And that's that's work for me. I have to work at that. Because, I mean, I remember sitting in a, in a meeting with a guy from church and we were just talking about all the things going wrong. This is about five or six years ago because now nothing goes wrong. Everything that used to be that things went wrong, but now we got it all worked out. Yeah, right. And we were just talking about, oh, there's this problem, and that problem, and this problem, and that problem. And we were like, wait a second. Yeah, we got a few things going on, but look at the, the thousand things that are going right. Look at the thousand, look at what God is doing in people's lives. And I can get an email, like I can be on the spiritual high and get an email or a phone call that can just cause me to take my eyes off the Lord to just, oh, and can just, just destroy me in a second. You ever get like that? Like you're just walking on this high and then someone says something or someone, and you're like, oh man, you know, I knew I wasn't called into ministry. I knew I shouldn't be doing this. And it's like, wait a second, wait a second, what are you doing, Steve? Where, 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 what are you looking at? He says, he began to sink and he cried out saying, Thomas, save me. Judas, help. That's not what he said. But that's oftentimes our first go-to, isn't it? Why is it that we're so afraid to go to God for help? Why is it that we cry out first to the counselor or first to, to the friend? Or, and I'm not saying you shouldn't go to these places. But I see that there is this temptation and this, this I, I don't know what it is, this fear of, of telling God that we have a problem. I mean, do you think Jesus doesn't see that Peter is sinking? And like Peter's going to pretend he's not sinking. You know, like, you know, no, sorry, I'm okay, Lord. 
Thomas, get the lifeline quick. I'm going down. Because you felt that. You know how many people I've talked to that they're just, they're just, and this is in ministry. This is, Peter says, you know, Jesus, come tell me to come to you. And he gets out and he walks on the water. And so it's not like he's just doing his own thing. God said, Jesus said, come. And he's in the midst of doing what he's been empowered to do. He gets his eyes off Christ and he begins to sink. And, and if you try to do ministry, if you try to do life in your own strength, growing, straining at the oars, I'll work harder or I'll paddle harder. And you begin to sink. The first place to cry out, you've got to have an anchor, a rock, an immovable spot. See, what if, what if Peter said, hey, Thomas, come on, grab me, Thomas. And, and Thomas reaches out of the boat. You know, he's a little off balance. And Peter reaches up to Thomas. Now there's two of them in the drink. Jesus is stable. You need, you can't build a life on instability and unstable things. Do you know that? You can't get rescued by someone who, who themselves is sinking in the water too. And at some point, you've got to cry out. And he does. This is the shortest prayer in the Bible, I think. And the best. Lord, save me. You don't need a seminary degree to pray that. You don't have to have that one. If you can't memorize that prayer, then we got to get you some ginkgo biloba or something. I don't know. Memory assistance. That one comes naturally. You know, he didn't think, well, gee, I should be, I should have my hands folded. I should be in my prayer closet. He was in the midst of his situation and he cried out very naturally, Lord, save me. And, and maybe some of you need Maybe someone here needs to cry out that very prayer. That, that's it. It's a simple prayer. It's not theologically, you know, uh, it bolstered up by, O oh Lord thy God, I sinketh. Needest I to saveth me. No! No, we don't talk like that. Why do we pray like that? I mean, prayer from the heart to God. Lord, I am in trouble. I've taken my eyes off of you once again. I've backslidden. And my choices have been bad. And now I'm sinking. And Jesus isn't going to stand there and say, well, you got yourself into this mess. Go ahead. Sink. If you just kept your eyes on me, you'd have been fine. But who of us can cast a stone at Peter, right? Who of us has at one time or another in our life gotten our eyes off Christ? Gotten him on money? Gotten him on work? Gotten him on that girlfriend or that boyfriend or that spouse? And we begin to shift our attention to those things. And then we realize it takes some time, doesn't it? It doesn't happen right away. It takes some time. Then pretty soon you realize, I'm in the drink. And that prayer is great. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And man, every time I read this, Jesus asked me that question again. And every time I go through some nonsense, whether it's ministry or personal, every time I go through something like that, and every time I get freaked out by what's going on, it's some little thing, not even a big thing, and, and then I get my eyes off, and he says, Steve, you know, why did you doubt? I know. 
tail between my legs. You're right. But what I love, now listen carefully, what I love about Peter is that he failed. And I would rather do ministry with a thousand people that have failed and seen and experienced both the power of God to walk on water and the faithfulness of God to pick you up when you sink. I would rather do ministry with a thousand people like that than one person who's never got out of the boat and has never dared to try anything and, and has sat and said, well, I've never failed. And all the, the finger pointers will point. All the disciples could say, you know, Peter sank. May that not be you. May you not be a finger pointer at those that are trying and daring and, and hustling and working and seeking and sinking. Give me a thousand people that have experienced failure in ministry and seen God's faithfulness to save them. And I'll show you a strong ministry team. A strong believer. Someone who now is recognizing God's ability in a new way that wasn't the feeding of the 5,000. Something new. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. That's when the wind ceased. The lesson has been taught. The lesson has been hopefully learned. But we shall see. So go back with me quickly to Mark chapter 6 and we'll wrap this up. We pick back up verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased. And that's now we catch back our story in Mark. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood. This was the problem. This is why they're here. They're still in the school of discipleship. Why? Because there was a lesson to be learned. Jesus broke bread, a miraculous feeding of the 5,000. They're still not getting it. So God says, Jesus says, okay, let's do another round of teaching. Class is again in session. And, and they hadn't understood. What hadn't they understood? They hadn't been able to put it together in their mind about the loaves. See, the stories are connected. They hadn't got it. Why? Because their heart was hardened. Their heart was like rock in terms of understanding who Jesus is. And today, no doubt, in a room of this size with this many people, there are some that your heart is hardened because of intellectualism. You've watched the YouTube videos and you've been in this, the classes that say, well, miracles don't happen and this isn't possible and this is why and we got it all figured out and your heart is like, no, I can't accept it. Let me say this. It's not that you can, it's that you won't. As I said in the beginning, you have to hold on to a belief. This is, I talk to atheists. I can help you convert any atheist to, to at least an agnostic. Because you say, well, I don't believe in God. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. Do you know everything? Well, who is going to... Only someone stupid is going to answer yes to that because if you answer yes, you admit you don't. So, who do you know everything? Well, of course I don't know everything. Right. Well, maybe God exists in this place where your understanding, admittedly so, doesn't reach. Oh, maybe so. Okay, I've just made you an agnostic. That means maybe God does exist, but outside of the plane of the realm of the things that me... In, in my little four-pound brain, can understand. What if miracles and the power of God, just because you haven't seen them, what if they exist in somewhere in this part of your brain that just we haven't figured out how to understand them yet? Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. Do you think you've seen everything? 
Do you think you've experienced everything? Then it's really intellectual pride that says, I can only believe in what I can see, touch, feel, measure, and understand. You've just closed the door on anything outside of your understanding, which you close the door. I mean, how much can your brain really comprehend? They say we use, what, like 10% of our brain? Some of us, much less. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. And today, you can soften your heart. And you can choose to believe the unbelievable. You can choose to experience the inexperienceable. I made that word up. When they had crossed over, verse 53, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So the crowds continue. They do not cease. And I pray, look, I was talking to the first service about this. We live in terrible times and we live in awesome times. Just this morning on the way, maybe you heard it. I, I've heard of more highway shootings now. Remember when that happened years ago? Now there's shootings in the highway. You just you can't even get in your car and not fear being shot. Kids can't go to school without fear. You know, nobody is safe anymore. And the minute you think you're in a safe place, you lie to yourself. And so we see that happening. But at the same time, it's always on the cusp of of great unrighteousness that God works. It's in the midst of the greatest darkness that the greatest revivals have happened. So on one hand, it's very discouraging. But on the other hand, I'm really encouraged because I think we are on the brink of an awesome move of God. And I am praying, and I hope you join me in praying, that people would come bringing their sick friends. And I don't mean physically sick, although physically sick works. We'll lay hands on you, pray for you to receive a gift of the healing touch of God. But spiritually sick, spiritually dead, bring them. I don't want to have to send, spend money sending mailers out to you. I don't like to spend money on that stuff. The best invitation is the one you give personally. You got a sick friend, you got a broken friend, you got a broken relative, say, hey, I know the healer. And I want to introduce you to it. And everybody who comes, I can guarantee you bring someone to Jesus, he's not going to say, nah, sorry, I'm full. I've had my quota for the day. He can handle them coming and coming and coming and come, I pray they do. Amen? Amen. Phil, if you would come up and uh, close us with a song. Uh, I'll be up here uh, after the service. The prayer room is open. Uh, The folks will be in there to pray with you. If you have something that's touched your heart or something you need to pray about or uh, whatever it is, come, cry out to the Lord. He is our only hope. Amen? Amen. Father, as the praise team comes, as we prepare to, to, uh, to close with song, we just come confessing our own weakness, our, our, our weakness to um, do anything spiritual without you. Our hesitation to do anything different to put ourselves in a place of needing You. And Lord, we know through thousands of years of history that You have never once failed anybody that has trusted You. And so I pray, Lord, that 
hard hearts would be softening. We pray for our county. We pray for our schools. We pray for our state and our nation, Lord. We do pray that in the face of growing unrighteousness and tensions and fears, that there would be a growing outcry to the living God, measured by, noted in, repentance, confession of sin, turning away from from sin, Lord, and a great growing of holiness and genuineness. So Lord, we pray these things in the name of your great Son, Jesus Christ. All God's people said, Amen.